Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. Today we speak with Najid Kassam. He's the CEO and founder of Kila, and also the founder of the Better Canada Initiative and former executive director of both End Poverty Now and Conversations for Change. He has the experience of working for the United Nations and the Senate of Canada, and is the author of the book, High on Life. Najid, thank you so much for being willing to talk a little bit today. It's a pleasure and an honor, and I'm excited to be um, to be chatting and sharing whatever little wisdom or stories I have today. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. Well, even before we began, we were talking about lots of things from how we really should be pronouncing your last name, <laughs> your grandparents might agree, as well as what the weather is like in Vancouver. So I know we have a big slate, but I do, I do want to ask you something right at the top. You were asked back in 2011 what you do, and you gave this great response because you said, I think first you said, it's complicated. And then you said, a law student, a writer, and an activist, which is a lot. Um, yes, sir. That was a long time ago. I don't even remember where I gave that interview, but it sounds like me. But how would you answer that question today? And are those pieces still pieces of Najid? Well, I'm thankfully not a law student anymore. Um, I am a full, I think I've been a lawyer for five years now, which is maybe more, which is crazy. Um, so, but I think, yes, those things are true, but I will add a few. Uh, I'm a father, I'm a husband. Uh, and I think activist, change maker, troublemaker are all in there too. And then of course, a CEO and a lawyer. Right. Well, you began by even telling me before we, we started recording that you were good at doing paperwork. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sadly. <laughs> that doesn't usually, that may uh, be a very important thing for an attorney to to be good at, although not all attorneys are. I mean, we both know the stories about Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure there's a mythical about storing all of his papers in his in his hat and then losing them. <laughs> <laughs> thankfully, my my I almost said BlackBerry. I'm dating myself, but thankfully, my iPhone does most of that storage for me, so I'm lucky. But, you know, it's, it's funny you talk about being a lawyer because while it's, you know, being a father and a husband and an activist are, are more central parts of my identity and my day to day, um, I think being a lawyer is a seminal part of it. When somebody asks me to introduce myself professionally, I start by saying I'm a lawyer, despite the fact that I haven't practiced law full time since 2016. And so I think law is the kind of thing that when you do it, it's such a defining part of how you think and who you become. It's been it's been such a blessing to be called to the bar in, in, in Ontario and then now in British Columbia and just to, to be to be to be a steward of the profession. And that touches every parts of our lives, whether it's from the roads and the water we drink to giving and the rules around them and fundraising. And so being a lawyer is definitely a big part of who I am. You talk about that almost like people talk about having served in the Marines, where they're once a Marine, always a Marine. Yes, sir. That as an attorney, but the way you describe the nature of your work 
it, it, it kind of informs that definition as well. You didn't just say that you're doing briefs for court. You, you're, you're engaged in issues. Well, and, and I think that it goes back to sort of the reason I went to law school. And, and I, I'd had the opportunity to, to, to serve this country as a, as a youth diplomat. Um, I, I worked for, I've worked for the United Nations. I've worked in politics. Um, but ultimately, to me, law is, especially the way that I use law and underlying for pu- public service, whether it's through the not-for-profit sector or through the true public service, to me, it's sort of like that bridge, or sorry, that, that the, the, the kind of underlying foundation, the scaffolding for all of what I do, especially on the change maker activist impact side. And so, yeah, I think I've been, I've certainly been battle hardened by law, you know, courtrooms and judges and briefs. And I was a corporate litigator. Um, so I, I've, I've definitely got those, those, few of those scars but but more it's yeah it's a part of that identity that i think and i think it's an honorable one sometimes it's mis mis misunderstood there are some dishonorable lawyers just like there are inherently some dishonorable marines but but the core of the profession the sort of the history and the beauty of it to me is is is, is something that i'm very proud of it's interesting because part of this has to do with how we define the work and mm-hmm. when you went through series of definitions, you said change maker and troublemaker, which is interesting too, since change maker is one of those terms that is is not well defined and mm-hmm. until embraced and defined well. It, so change maker and troublemaker, that also doesn't necessarily sound like what we usually think of when we think of an attorney. How, how so, are you those things as well? Yeah, I think I use the term a little tongue in cheek. Um, I grew up in a family of four boys. So I mean, you can imagine the trouble I've spent the last 35 years causing. But um, I think to me, the most important part of understanding that self-conception is that, you know, my job as a change maker is to examine, re-examine and shed light on ways to 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 look at things differently. Right. To change the status quo, to ultimately um, make better our our society every day um, and so sometimes that gets you into trouble sometimes speaking the truth gets you into trouble sometimes challenging preconceived notions or conceptions is troublemaking and so i think you know i don't see that as a negative thing i see that as you know some of the greatest philosophers of our time some of the greatest scientists of our time have have been troublemakers in their time but you know, sort of seminary to who we are as a, as a, as a, as a human race hundreds of years later. And while I'm certainly never going to be any of those things in terms of like, I think looking at things differently, changing conceptions and changing perspectives is, is, is sort of how I understand that quote unquote trouble. I have a nine month old baby. Trouble is lives in my house. <laughs> but it's, that's the uh, definition of good trouble, I guess. Yes, sir. Absolutely. How, how is it having a new baby in the house? How are you and, and, oh, uh, and the mother? It's, so my wife is awesome. She's the best mom in the world, and it's really made me fall in love with her in a completely different way, which is phenomenal. Um, I will say two things about being – it's our first child, about a new dad. The first one is it is breathtakingly amazing. I never thought I could love someone so much or, or feel the way that I feel. It is also exhausting um, and working the kind of hours I do, plus being really, really present 
um, has been has definitely been trying. But I think that in some ways the pandemic has has provided me an opportunity to work from home in a way that I would never have spent this much time with my son. And I think it'll hopefully, you know, lay the foundations of our relationship for the next 75 years. So for that, I'm, I'm weirdly grateful. But Jay, I would be lying to tell you that I'm not tired. And I think it's not just like the lack of sleep. I can deal with that. It's <laughs> coming to terms with the fact that I can't control his destiny, that he's going to fall over, that he's going to have bad days and he's going to grow and his teeth are going to hurt him. And there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. Fathering, fatherhood's a lot more humbling, I think, than I expected it to be, which is which is wonderful. But I think that's where a lot of the tiredness comes from. A bit like life, actually. I, I suppose that's true. It, the, and you've had this additional gift beyond having a, a new member of the family, having sort of the gift of time because of the mm-hmm. pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also must create its own set of complexities because that must mean that while you can be there for one another you don't I don't know how it's been in terms of having others be helpful not not is the answer it's been very so we're really lucky to have some live-in help at home my wife and I are both um, executives and so but you know even with with that support you know my parents have not really been able to come my in-laws have not been able to come which you know that one I might take one out of every two times. But, um, um, you know, I think jokes aside, it's been isolating. And so while it's been a blessing in so many ways, it's it's definitely not been normal. And But I think it's brought our family, our new growing family. I mean, we've been married a while, but our fa- together st- made it stronger. And I think this pandemic, just like most things in life too, shall pass. And, and so I think the... We'll make up the time with our families, but this we'll never be able to replicate. So, you know, trying to take the the good and the, the silver lining from it all. You talk a lot about your family right there. It's also a part of much of what you talk about when you talk about your journey in general. Yes, sir. Yes, and, sir. Yeah, and it goes back a couple of generations, even before we begin talking uh, on the recording. You, you were talking about your great-grandparents. When you think back in your own family, and maybe, of course, including your wife's family, how far back do you look for some kind of sense about where you come from and what inspires what you do? So, you know, firstly, it's 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 so funda- fundamental. And, and I'll tell you a couple of stories. The first one is, you know, my day job is the CEO at Kila. Uh, the word Kila is a Swahili word. Uh, it's from the word Kila Mtu or Kila Kitu. So it means kila mtu means everyone and kila kitu means everything. And mm-hmm. so the idea of kila, we changed the spelling to make it look nicer, to be honest, but um, it means every, it means all. It's an encompassing, envelope, enveloping kind of almost like inclusive word, right? That's everyone, everything. It's, and mm-hmm. so our thesis at kila, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is to empower everybody with everyone in the sector with transformative technology. So even the work I do is grounded in my family. A little bit of history. My, so my great, my, my, my dad's side, my great grandparents. On my mom's side, it's actually my grandparents. I was wrong. I just remembered that. But, and on my wife's side, her great, great grandparents on both sides all come from uh, what is now India, Pakistan, right near the border. 
um, actually on the India side, though. And so they all left before partition, of course, um, during the British rule of the country. Um, and they migrated um, partly due to religious persecution, uh, were Muslim, uh, and partly due to economic opportunity down the western coast of, of, um, of India and to Tanzania, Uganda, and Kenya. And so... You know, our my grandfather on my dad's side was born in Tanzania, and he was born in rurally. He was a un, relatively uneducated, you know, very uneducated. Relatively, um, you know, he moved to Dar es Salaam, which is obviously the biggest city in Tanzania, um, and uh, as like a 15, 16 year old, and he started working at a grocery store or like a shop, you know, like a trading shop, shop. And and over success, he was, excuse my language, Jay, but a badass entrepreneur. And by the time he was in his twenties, he owned the shop, and then he became he got a series of shops. And then, you know, um, as you know, what happened in Uganda and what some of which happened in in Tanzania, uh, it wasn't a great time to, to to look like us in that part of the world. There was persecution and economic fear. Um, through a series of things, my grandfather's assets got taken from him. And my father-in-law, who was from Uganda's story is even more heartbreaking. Family members were killed. They had to escape. I have a member of my my uncle, my aunt. Um, she told tells the story of like running to catch the last plane out of Uganda. And so they landed in Canada and in the United Kingdom kind of not only hoping for a new life like all immigrants, but um, I would say fleeing or or almost, you know, almost fleeing, you know. And so that experience, I, by the way, have felt absolutely none of that. I was born in Canada, luckiest life in the world, but my parents and my and our family kind of was able to thrive and survive and to grow and to give me all the privilege that I've held because of this, their passion and their dedication and their commitment to being better, but also because of the support they were able to get from civil society and from the not-for-profit sector. And my parents grew up to be dentists. They're wonderfully boring people. Um, and they, they were only able to thrive because of that support. And it is, when I was born here in Vancouver, they taught me very, very early that it was my responsibility and, you know, that I'd been given this chance that no, generations of our family hadn't to give give back in a way where you're not needing to give back, but you're choosing to give back. But it's a kind of a responsibility. And so that history that you asked about is actually why I've been in the nonprofit sector for 32 years since I was three years old. And it's why I've, I'm so committed and passionate to changing the space because I truly believe that it, well, it changed the course of our family's history. But you, you've also said, I think it was at your 13th birthday party, you just suddenly stood up and made an announcement to the whole world that you were going to be a lawyer. So, no, no, I honestly no idea what, what, I don't think I knew what a lawyer was. I think I saw it, saw it on TV or, you know, I think one of the agents for one of the Vancouver Canucks was a lawyer. And I was like, I want to be that. So I'm going to be a lawyer some silly thing like that. But, but as, you know, his, his, the universe has a funny way of doing things. And so, you know, kind of, I guess, 20 years, 20 plus years later, I find myself do, oddly doing exactly what I thought I'd be doing, albeit in a different form. 
Right. Well, you could have stood up and said you'd be a dentist and people might have been. I think my mom and dad would have said, don't, don't do it. So. Now you just introduced your nonprofit journey, which is a huge piece of this, this, this kind of parallel track where you were addressing all the things that you just discussed that your family had experienced. UNDP and Poverty Now, an early organization you founded, your work as a youth ambassador, I guess, with the Global Initiative, and then the book. And so where are your passions for change-making going now? How have they evolved? You know, I think I've been so blessed. I've held so many roles in the sector from, I remember like, fundraising door-to-door as a kid, to sorting clothes for a local homeless shelter as a teenager, to being a national executive director at the age of 20, you know, it was our 21 maybe. Um, and, and sort of now I've sit on boards and, and you know, I, can, I do charity law and I'm able to, I've seen the sector from so many different spaces. And one theme that's run through has been and continues to be the fact that our sector is so important to society and yet is changing so slowly. And so, you know, one day I'm going to die and one day I'm going to look at myself as I'm transitioning to whatever comes next and say to myself, you know, what did you do to better the human experience? And maybe it's because of my family history or because of early experiences, you know, I think we have an opportunity at Kila and me as a person to transform how we give and how we steward and how we engage civil society. And so, you know, I think I was a culprit, the problem for so many years. I did things the way that they were done because that's what was taught to me by my mentors and by the, by the leaders that I followed and learned from and, 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 and worked under. And so for me, I think the next phase of my journey is taking three decades of engagement in the space and and looking at it critically, troublemaking, to kind of go back to our early conversation saying, what can we do different to give us another hundred years of giving? And, you know, nonprofit, the nonprofit sector is 5.6% of the U.S. GDP. Now, that's not an inconsequential amount of time, money, effort and lives. And so. My hope and my, my, my assumption is that we need to be thinking about it differently so that it can thrive over the coming century. So when you say differently, without getting too much, of course. Detail, for example, Keela, yet, because I do want to ask you about that. But when you say mm-hmm. different, what do you envision? How do, so you've mentioned 5.6%, and many yep. people I talk with jump to, well, we're trying to increase the amount of money that's given to philanthropy. Other people talk about, perhaps the efficiency or the need to bring mm-hmm. organizations together. There are lots of mm-hmm. different What first mm-hmm. occurs to you? How do we make this better? So I think there's a couple things. Um, so I'm going to focus on two, which are quite disparate in isolation. The first one is I do think that organizations can operate with different assumptions. And I, I, I'm hesitant, although I fall prey to using the word efficient, often or more efficient because it makes it makes folks think that it's inefficient Hmm. which i'm sure there are inefficiencies but that doesn't mean the industry in and of itself is inefficient so Hmm. what i'll say is 
I think we can make organizations operate more efficiently, that we can leverage things like automation and data and, 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 and assisted decision-making that we can, you know, Beth Cantor wrote a book or a blog or something about how stressed out and overpressured and exhausted the sector is. And, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, tech and, and, and changed processes and all these things that you know, we'll talk about can actually alleviate that. They can provide a, a release from so much of that because this sector is so important. So making the sector more efficient or more operationally engaged is the first one. And I think the second one, which is quite different but related, is, is there's a new generation rising, uh, or gen, generations, I guess I should say, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, of which you know I'm one of those three. I'm like a late millennial or whatever. Um, we're ab- about to inherit the largest amount of wealth in human history, something like $10 trillion over the next 10 years. And that means that the decision makers for giving are going to be different. They're going to be different. And so one hope that I have and one dream and one North Star is that I think we as a nonprofit sector need to understand that the folks in Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z are engaged in our sector differently. They give differently, they give through different channels, they have different expectations, and they're going to be driving the decisions. And so if we don't adapt and engage and empower them, the sector's going to struggle. And then, you know, you spoke about increasing money and increasing philanthropy. None of that can happen if you don't um, appropriately engage those gens. So I'd say that's the second thing. And... I don't understand, I want to assume anything here. Mm-hmm. Tell me why you think that the emerging generations will have different expectations and mm-hmm. how we can better meet them. So I think the, the, the why I believe that is just I've read the data. You, you look at giving patterns and they're no longer happening through United Ways or through churches or through whatever they might be, that giving has become increasingly decentralized, that recurring giving is more difficult to achieve, that legacy gifts are less engaged, that people are giving more small dollar gifts to more different institutions, diversifying their giving, so to speak. And and maybe most, for me for as a charity lawyer, most interestingly, they don't care about tax deductibility anymore. So 501c3s or registered charities or you know orgs in Australia where they're, which, which are DG, have DGR status, for example, are no longer pedestalized um, for for giving when people are willing to give to their friends, those in need, with a pretty utter disregard of the tax consequences, for lack of a better word. And so because that's changing, you're seeing communities and platforms, and there's all these, you know, kind of crowdfunding platforms and whatever, where the institutions are, are not just institutions, they're people, they're causes, they're, they're pages that people just create and and, and people give to. And that's different. It's just different. And so I'm not reading any tea leaves. I'm reading the data. That's all, Jay. I'm not, I'm not bright enough to read tea leaves. But I, I do see that that pattern is real and it's established and reestablished. And it means that our sector is going to have to take notice of it. And as you describe that, you have not cast an opinion about 
whether or not those changes, I'm talking now about the, the mm -hmm. ones that are made possible by different forms of technology, the different mm -hmm. platforms you utilize. I'm not talking about generations here, but you haven't uh, stated whether or not you think that some of these changes are in fact beneficial either to the organizations or to the causes which those organizations uh, and new organizations seek to serve. And just one case in point is you mm -hmm. address that, and that's something like Facebook. Facebook mm -hmm. has obviously been everything from good to ill. And mm -hmm. in one place, philanthropy, we're talking about raising over a billion dollars through things like birthday campaigns, mm -hmm. a way for any organization or individual mm -hmm. to say thank you and encourage them to keep doing what they apparently are interested in doing. So where's the, the value uh, in terms of helping the emerging generations with all their great dedication to philanthropy to be even better at doing what they're already willing to do? Well, I think, Jay, you took the words almost out of my mouth. It's not for me to opine or pontificate, although I'm probably good at both of those things, on what's right or wrong. Um, it's my responsibility, especially in my role, role you know, at Kila and with N10 and all these other things, to say, this is what's happening. How are we going to respond? And I use the word respond, not react with, with, a, with a degree of purpose, because this is not about you know, overreacting. It's about looking at how things are changing and meeting people where they are. Because if you meet them where you are, you can steer them to where you want them to go. If you, and, and that, you know, sometimes troublemaking isn't just caused by revolution. It can be caused by serious and sane and, 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 and methodical work. And so in, in my case here and my own personal beliefs is that we can meet these generations where they are. We understand the rise of social and the rise of decentralized giving and the rise, all, some of the things you spoke about, speak about, excuse me. And we say to ourselves, instead of fighting back against that, how do we go, let there be a meeting of the minds, and then we can begin to steer them and step them to where they can exponentialize and engage their giving and their philanthropy in ways that are beneficial to them and their belief systems, but also valuable and and um and 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 repeatable for our sector does that make sense it does i do imagine that people will ultimately ask you to opine <laughs> about whether or not these Look, are good or I, not i think if i was going to opine what i will say is i want to do everything possible to encourage people to give I want people to feel that they don't that they aren't boxed into giving in, in the old way. You know, if an organization, I'm going to use a very dull example, but if an organization only takes checks, they're not going to receive donations from anybody under the age of 50. You know, maybe me because I like my checkbook. It's you know <laughs> makes me feel like the old days. But but and so I'm not saying it's better or worse, or maybe I am inherently. But what I am saying is. You got to meet them where they are. And that's a good thing because it's expanding philanthropy and it's expanding giving. And it's ultimately strengthening our charitable and not-for-profit sectors, not inhibiting it. And that's probably a, a great segue to Kila itself. Mm -hmm. I'm just asking the simplest question. Why did you form Kila? And <laughs> what do you hope Kila is, is going to help people to do now, to, especially for these emerging generations? So why I formed Kila is because I was the problem. I was a problem of, 
you know, I was sitting on the board of an organization when I was just starting my legal career. I was the young guy on the board and my, I was told, go find technology, go find tech that can help us scale and grow and work better. And, you know, firstly, Jay, I want to say I still write with a fountain pen. I am not a technologist. I'm a student now of technology, but I'm not inherently a technologist. But I was the young guy, and it was a really amazing education-focused nonprofit in Toronto. And so off I went and did my research and Google, Googled everything and kind of dug in, so to speak. And what I found was what I was looking for didn't exist in the form I wanted it to. It was either too expensive or too complicated or um, didn't have the functionality or the features or wasn't thinking about things the way that I thought they should be thought of or my board, I guess, wanted. And so I said those three words that you know every entrepreneur has said, I could build that. And what, you know, you know this is, Kila is, I was really you know, grateful to be one of the founders, but it's not my first entrepreneurial venture. It's certainly my first tech venture. Um, I started my first business when I was 13 and, you know, the, the pear doesn't fall far from the grandfather tree, right? And my grandpa did it and he passed away when I was a kid, but, but I seem to have that in him, in me, excuse me. So I knew how to build a business or a nonprofit. I founded multiple nonprofits. So, you know, it's sort of rinse and repeat, but what I found was the problems that I wanted to solve were not well being solved by the market. What I didn't know was just the scale of these problems and the scale of the opportunity for technology in the, in the not-for-profit sector. What I did know was I got to have something to solve this issue because my board's going to get annoyed and I want to scale this organization because we're doing amazing work. And that was kind of the, the seed to it all. It didn't quite materialize for a couple of years, but finally it started off the side of my desk as a lawyer, as a young litigator, and then when my wife wanted to leave Toronto and come back here to Vancouver, where we were both born and raised, I kind of made the jump. And that was in, you know, towards the end of 2016. And since 2017, I've kind of been head first, feet first, all in, so to speak, to, to growing and scaling um, this amazing organization. And if, you, if for those who don't know Kila, mm-hmm. what kind of the single breath description of what you do and why it's important? Yeah, so thank you for that opportunity. Kila is a is a backend system, um, a, a CRM, a fundraising tool, a donor management tool for small to medium sized nonprofits. It's a it's the sort of unsexy part of administration. It's you know charitable com- uh, you know tax compliance, IRS compliance, or CRA or whatever. We have a bunch of different compliances. It's donation forms. It's CRM. It's you know all those good things. Uh, two things that are really, really exciting for me about what we're building. One is uh, our UX UI and our product design. You know, what I learned being kind of, you know, a little bit tech phobic myself was the power of technology is only as good as the user's ability to use it. And so for us, making it accessible and making the horsepower of Kila accessible to anybody working in the sector um, is really, really a defining value. And the second thing, and what is sort of the more sexy side of our business is Kila is a world leader on data and intelligence in the space. So, um, you know, we help organizations understand their data. We help to predict 
using it. We help them to organize it and set goals around it. We help them to be data enabled and data inspired so that they can do their work more effectively. And that's where Kila gets really fun. And that's actually where you know, we're lucky to partner with a bunch of you know, um, partners like DonorSearch and, 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 and others who help us to help our customers' data experience be that much better. And I do want to ask you about, about this because you mm-hmm. said it before that you trust the power of data and you just described some of the values, intrinsic yes, data, sir. information when it's integrated with your platform. There are two pieces to that that I did want to probe with you. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of data available. And as we've just seen on the geopolitical sphere, especially in the United States just recently, not all data is equal. And then there's another piece, which is that um, we have users who might be able to do their work better, more effectively, Mm -hmm. not just more efficiently, Mm -hmm. but more effectively, achieve that change they want to see in the world if they use these platforms like Kilo well. well. So what are your thoughts? Uh, now on making sure that people are choosing the right information, not being mm-hmm. disinformed, but, but properly informed, and that they're taking action using the tools that they have available to them. So before, I, so I learned the power or the 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 miss power, I guess, potentially of data um, when I was studying from you know I, I started my um, my graduate school uh, at Oxford uh, after I graduated. Um, before I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer properly, not when I was 13, you know, like when I wanted to actually be a lawyer. Um, and so I, I started down a, an academic path. Um, and my, my, my studies were, were actually in the, the realm of politics. So, uh, and so I learned how data can be manipulated, how it can be misrepresented, how it can be misunderstood very early in my life, in my early tw- my like 22, 23, that kind of time in my life. Now, while I dropped out of Oxford to go to law school, those lessons stuck with me. And I think it's very apt of you to mention that data in and of itself is dangerous. Um, It can be misinterpreted, it can be misused, it can be manipulated. And so I think where Kila and where the work we work so hard on is to unbundling all that data, to, to giving it direction, to making it representative, to making it accessible, because anybody can look over thousands and thousands of lines of data, but very few folks in the world can look at that and see opportunity or truth or, or get excited about what can come and take, you know, use, to use your term, not just work efficiently, but work effectively. So to me, yes, data can be misunderstood. And a big part of what we do, especially with Kila's intelligence tools is help to give that direction, which is a kind of a nice segue into your second question, which is data, just like technology, is only as good as the people using it. And so, you know, one of Kila's kind of off-the-record mantras is be like we're like a data scientist in your pocket, right? We help our customers who don't know anything about data understand and engage with the power of data. We democratize it. Um, and that means if you're a small to medium-sized organization who can't afford a data consultant, you're okay because your CRM already has that data anyway. And hopefully your CRM is Kila. And if it is, we will help you interpret it and be empowered by it. Does that answer your question? Yes, I think as well as as you could answer it because mm-hmm. 
the, one of the challenges is that even if you create this a beautiful environment with mm-hmm. robust and valuable and 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 trustworthy data, mm-hmm. you still have individuals out there who are influenced by their environment, whether that environment mm-hmm. is pandemic we just have been living through mm-hmm. or whether it's the political environment that has all these other kind of psychological as well as political and economic costs. And, mm-hmm. and this actually you've talked about in other environments. You've talked about um, what it is to be a leader. And, and mm-hmm. I know at one point that as a leader, you've got to mitigate your ego. And, I, and I'm yes, wondering, sir. especially at a time like this, when many of us are sitting as I am right now, and perhaps you are in front of a laptop, looking at a mm-hmm. blank and having a mm-hmm. conversation as humanly as we can in this environment, it's still disembodied. Mm-hmm. The, we might've relied on to be good leaders, if in fact we were good leaders. We may not have all those same tools at our disposal and we have additional pressures we didn't have before. Mm-hmm. So that, as you said, maybe we have to put our ego aside. Do you have thought- I don't think maybe, I'm sure of it. I would bet my whole boots on it. The best leaders in our history from Abraham Lincoln, who I think you mentioned at the beginning of this call, right, to folks who are in the political, non-political business, it is that humility, or what my dad likes to term intellectual humility, that's that's actually a guiding force. And I think that's really important. And it's hard because leaders inherently usually are quite successful. But what I've learned is, you know, I, I'm writing another book right now, Jay, about great business leaders here in Vancouver. And I've interviewed 15 or 13 or something, amazing leaders. And through it all, they've talked about leading through servant leader to leadership or leading from behind or leading to empower. And inherent in all that is the, is the mitigating of the ego, right? Because if you can do that and listen more than you can talk, you are going to be able to better support people. And I think with all of what's going on in the world, if people remembered to listen more than they talked, I feel like we might be in a little bit of a better place. How about that? I I definitely agree. And maybe every conversation is an opportunity to relearn or learn for the mm-hmm. first time. Um, and and, and it, it, but you've been practicing it too. As you said, right now, if you're writing this book, it sounds like you're taking the opportunity to listen to 13 mm-hmm. stories. That's mm-hmm. effective what you did when you wrote that first book and yes, for those sir. who are like me and can't get it because it's apparently not in digital form can you just tell us a little bit about the last book because that sure. was your journey too so firstly i am working really hard my chief of staff is working really hard to get it on kindle so i will you know keep checking amazon.com or i should do some i'll tweet it or something it'll happen soon um so that's the comment but you know the first book was called high on life and it was uh, High on Life, Stories of Hope, Change, and Leadership. And I was a kid, Jay. I was 23, 24 years old when I worked on it. And what it was, was it was actually much more journalistic than a book. It, it, I, I got to profile 17 amazing young people from 12 countries, everywhere from South Africa and Zimbabwe to India to the United States and Canada to the UK and lots of great com- countries. And you know what I was it, it was it was really a reflection, a personal exercise. I, I was I was I was actually it was actually when I was a, a delegate to the Clinton Global Initiative when I was a university student that I had this idea. And I remember I have a selfie with Bill Clinton. Uh, I remember it because I remember taking it and I, I still have it somewhere on a computer somewhere. But the memories from that trip, I was in New Orleans right after the hurricane. 
we're not from meeting all these famous, fancy, brilliant people, but we're from the stories of the inspiring colleagues that I met along the way. And what struck me as I was, I don't know, leaving or coming home back um, to Canada was I wish every Canadian, or I guess everyone, but at the time I was thinking sort of about Canadians, could hear and be inspired by the wisdom of their fellow youth. And so I said, well, I could put that together and that I'm a, you know, not terrible writer. So I can weave a narrative. I can work with people to help tell their stories. And so I did it. And some of the people that were either worked on the editorial book or in, in, uh, sorry, who worked on the editorial part or indeed were in the book has stayed friends with me, you know, 15, 12, 13 years later. And, and their stories, their voices about change, about impact, about leadership, you know, continue to guide. And, you know, I haven't picked up the book for in a couple of years, but every time I read it, I, I, I relearn to, to use your words. And I'm, re, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of just how much I have to learn. And these are stories that not only did I write, but I've read and reread. I mean, we had 46 versions of the drafts. I, I should know them by heart, even 15 years later, but they, they're always serving to that wisdom is, you know, is a reminder of my, you know, it's a humility reminder. There's so much that I have to continue to learn. And I've already even learned this and I have to relearn it. So, you know, that was a, an exercise that, that was, you know, the former Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien wrote the foreword of it. All the proceeds um, went to a foundation. And, uh, and it, was, it was a real honor to, to be able to help share stories, but mostly just to learn, um, which is sort of an MO that I, that I continue in my life. I wonder if um, any of you, you as the, the writer and compiler and editor and those people you interviewed, could have foreseen some of the changes that we've seen mm -hmm. in the last decade, I think because it was originally published in paperback uh, 10 years ago. And so, yeah. Oh, it's only 10. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yep. So now 10 years on, it must be, they must've been very um, open um, people. They were, they were making change at a young age and now 10 mm -hmm. years on, like you 10 years on are looking at an environment that has been, substantially challenged. Um, how, how are you taking um, that experience of revisiting those ideas and that book, now writing this new mm -hmm. book about leadership and then applying it to your understanding of the particular challenges we're facing now, especially the, the political ones, mm -hmm. where um, without being too specific about you know the who's or the what's of it, it does seem like many of the things that probably challenged uh, your grandparents, your great grandparents, mm -hmm. your, your parents that made that journey to where you are today. Mm -hmm. Some of those forces were also nationalist forces, were they not? For sure, for sure. You know, so a couple of things that come to mind when you ask that question, and I don't know that I have a good answer for it, Jay. The first one is that change is inevitable, and change is also cyclical. And there's so, you know, people often op you know, opine, why are we learning history? This is why we learn history. This is why I love to read things that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago, because there's so, you know, so much that's happened will happen again, maybe a different form, maybe with a different set of veneers on top of it, but it's the same. Yeah, I made a dental reference there of my dad, I think. Um, but, um, you know, it is going to come back and we can learn from the past. Uh, and, and I think that's important. What I will 
What I will pivot your question to, though, is a, a call to support civil society. One thing that helped my parents, my 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 grandparents, the folks that you know work on my team, we have a ton of immigrants and I think we have a refugee even on my team. They've all been supported by civil society. So through the turmoil, through the fears, through the change that is inherently inevitable and a little bit scary, especially some of the stuff that's happened of recent, what we can what we've learned through history is that strong communities, resilient civil society that's well supported and trusted is going to help you or help us as a society be better. I I was posted with the UN in Cairo just after the revolution and Tahrir Square was like a democracy student's dream, right? I mean, you watched it. I was in the square a couple of months after the revolution when the revolution was still going on and I watched democracy happen. I watched hope happen. I watched communities engage and debate and discuss what may or may not be successful. And that's for smarter minds than me to, to, to determine. But I saw the value that community can bring and the change that it can usher in. And so what I will say to all folks who are listening and whether, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum in any country in the world, the strength of civil society will protect our democracies. And I think that is, to me, an undeniable truth. That is something that we can all be reminded of. Now, as we're talking about this, bringing it back down to, to you, mm-hmm. you've been on a journey where you're working all these pieces and this definition continues to evolve. Mm-hmm. Now you've built Kila, obviously it's doing very well. You've joined the board of intent, so that's that's really, Fantastic too, uh, being able to apply and leverage that impact. Uh, But I can't help but imagine that this conversation we're having is sort of like walking into uh, a fast-moving stream that you keep (laughs) forward quickly. So if I came back and talked to you again tomorrow or next year, certainly ten years from now, it it might look a little different. Even though that Mm -hmm. some of these continue to be there, we'd still be in the same waters, just a different place Mm -hmm. in them. And Mm -hmm. so, what's next on that journey? For you, so I think a couple things. I will start with 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 it with an with an with an ode to the humility, and I don't always know the answer to that question. I don't think any of us do. Um, I think if you'd asked President Obama what would happen in five years after he left his presidency, I don't think even he could have predicted this. So we just don't know. What I will tell you though is those values that you talked about about impact and dedication to community and community transformation. Um, that true trust in data and technology, these are themes that I think won't go away. And, and in terms of what's next, I mean, primarily, I want to build a, a world where my son is safe and proud to grow up in. I want to build communities that feel empowered by the people that support them and can support those of us who need help. And thankfully, you know, I don't need help in the way my grandparents did, but we all need support from our communities in some way. And thirdly, as we do that, as we build our civil society, we are ultimately strengthening our democracy. And, and I really do believe that, Jay. And, and so the challenges we face now are going to be a different face in 10 or 20 or 50 years. But the more we strengthen our communities, the stronger we will be. So to answer your question more directly, it's continuing through my work at Kila and all the other opportunities I have to double down on what do I got to be doing to constantly build the best teams I can 
to move this needle forward? How can I continue to engage and empower folks to use data to do good work, to make better decisions, to understand themselves, their organizations, and their their you know fundraising or whatever it might be more effectively? And lastly, how do I get out of the way when necessary to let those new emerging leaders take the light and the baton and the forefront of 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 this transformation that ultimately I don't think will ever end. So, Najee, I have to ask you, what do you think your grandparents would say about all this? I think you'd be proud that, you know, the, the grandson of someone who slept on the floor of a grocery store is now got a grandson who has a chance to speak about changing country and building civil society and strengthening democracy and has his name on the front of books. Uh, but ultimately, I think he'd, he'd just be proud that I have a son and I have... Uh, that I'm, I'm dedicated, and I think he would be. I, th I think, I think he would smile. He had a very sly smile. I've seen photos, and you know that generation was more quiet than maybe we are. They didn't have the the benefits or ills of social media or all these kinds of you know microphones. But I think his pride would would. I mean, it's it's a pretty amazing story that you know. 150 years, essentially, has seen such a massive, maybe 80 years, I guess, a massive transformation. And I think he would tell me, don't get complacent. I think he would tell me that, you know, take a minute, enjoy your son, but build, continue to build a better world for him because history has taught us that we got to keep trudging and chugging along, excuse me. Thank you so much for all this, uh, Najid. Really appreciate it. And congratulations to you both on the birth of your oh, son. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And, and Jay, it's been a real pleasure. I, I, at some point, I'd love to interview you and talk about how you're thinking about fundraising changing. You've got decades of experience in that. It's, uh, it's an honor to, 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 I guess, to get to know you better now. And, and I'm excited about our next conversation. The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.